0: Hello, everyone. So um, I just wanted to take a moment to welcome you all to the 106th Assembly of the American Ethical Union. This is the sort of kickoff event of the Assembly. And I am thrilled about tonight's speaker and about the the really incredible array of programs that the hardworking assembly committee has put together for us to enjoy over the next two months. Um, that is really all I had to, uh, all I had to say. I wanna leave as much time as possible
1: for our speaker, So I'm gonna pass this on over to Bart. Very nice, thank you, Sonia. And welcome everyone to the uh, keynote event for the 106th Assembly of the American Ethical Union. The American Ethical Union, we usually refer to ourselves as the AEU. We are a federation of groups of ethical societies in the United States. We began with four groups in 1989, 1889, sorry, more than 100 years ago. And now we have 23 and close to 2,000 individuals as members of our societies. We all aim to create, nurture, and inspire ethical humanist communities and to foster a world that is democratic, compassionate, just, and sustainable. We're a humanist movement, focusing on human goodness and building ethical relationships with each other and with the Earth. As a non-theistic organization, we do not concern ourselves with the existence or non-existence of a deity, but instead embrace the diversity of humanity and of life. And tonight begins a two-month-long series of events, We'll have a keynote tonight with Egberto Willies, 11 educational presentations, eight pre-business meeting sessions, two award ceremonies, the culminating assembly business meeting on August 7th, and an all-society platform on Sunday, August 8th. And As Sonia said, there are a lot of people that have been working on this uh, for a long time, and the Assembly Committee people, I think, would really love to uh, hear your thanks uh, when you get the chance. Uh, I also want to make a special point of uh, mentioning that we now have Anna Orkut-Johns with us as our full-time program support and communications person. And she has been doing great work in getting these things prepared and getting all our uh, communications out. So uh, a shout out to Anna uh, and really so happy that she is aboard with us. Um, And so now, without further ado, I'd like to turn things over to Randy Best, who will provide the introductions for tonight's guests.
2: Randy. Good evening. I'm Randy Best, and I'm the leader of the Northern Virginia Ethical Society and a member of the AAU Assembly Committee. And it's great to be here this evening. Egberto Willies is a political activist, author, political blogger, and radio show host. Egberto left the software company he founded to pursue political activism. He launched the radio media program, Politics Done Right, with the goal of discussing political flashpoints from a progressive point of view. Originally from Panama, Egberto left to attend college in a small Texas town. He initially experienced America as an outsider. This vantage point allowed him to see America with fresh eyes. American habits and institutions were once new to him. Nowadays, not so much. Upon transferring to UT Austin, Egberto told of his experience in his book, It's Worth It. How to Talk to Your Right-Wing Friends and Neighbors. He wrote, both students and professors in many instances went out of their way to remind me that I was an other. Egberto encountered American racism and how expectations are based on the color of your skin. When encountering differences of opinion with others, Egberto made a conscious choice to lean in. He included this packet passage in his book, It's Worth It. How one ultimately resolves their interactions with others is generally predicated by past experiences. Some either decide to always stay in a place of comfort, others explore, I explore. Exploring human connection across differences is a lifelong enterprise for Egberto. Through involvement with the coffee party and insightful commentary on his program, Politics Done Right, Egberto listens deeply to others, articulates his progressive values, and plants the seeds of change. Please join me in welcoming the keynote speaker for the 106th American Ethical Union's annual assembly, Egberto Willis, whose topic is Empowering Us All, makes our demands undeniable and attainable.
3: First of all, I want to thank you. uh, I want to thank your organization, American Ethical Union, for having me. Um, It was uh, after learning about you and after reading about what you represented, I have to say that I was more than elated because it was like finding a group of folk who really thought, I don't want to say the same way that I thought, but actually had those values of want, had those human values that was willing to engage, which is all that I stand for. So um, first of all, I want to uh, thank you, first of all, for the things that you said about me. But I want to talk a little bit more about myself because I think it is important for one to understand who you are, to understand uh, why you feel the way you do, why you say the things that you do. Why you act the way that you do? I grew up in uh, the, the small country of Panama. Panama is an isthmus. Uh, it has several parts as well. It has several different kinds of cultures within that community itself. Uh, my forefathers came from Jamaica and other Caribbean islands uh, to build the canal in Panama. Those that uh, most of those Caribbean folks, the black folks in Panama. Uh, th- there are two kinds of black folks in Panama, the costeños, which are the ones that were under the Spanish rule, and then there were the, uh, the, the Caribbean ones that came from the islands. Uh, I am from the Caribbean ones that came to the island. As we assimilated, we all became Afro-Latinos. In other words, we were black folk who spoke Spanish. Some of us decided that we wanted to take those good jobs that the Americans offered. It was below what Americans gave. I mean it below what Americans earned in Panama because they got something called a differential. But it was way above what you would make in Panama. So some of us became a bit special as we got those special jobs with the United States. And in, with that came a whole lot of privileges for Panamanians in Panama over Panamia. So that is kind of where you, you start to learn a few things. Um, I, I learned, I went to school in both Spanish and English. Our classes were actually really bilingual. I learned, uh, I learned chemistry in Spanish. I learned civics in Spanish. I learned phys- physics in English. So it, that is the kind of schooling that we went. And that's the reason why I speak English like an American, well, like a Caribbean person, and Spanish like somebody from Colon. That's a part of Panama where I'm from. Now, when um, those of us who live in Panama, we looked at the United States as that bastion of democracy because that is what the United States sells. If you go any part of the world, what the United States sell is the bastion of democracy. And we believe it. And we all came here the best way we could. Though especially those of us that grew up, uh, again, uh, in, in those both worlds, we came here and we expected democracy. And you know, for the most part, you know, I, I would say when I just got here, we found it. Uh, when uh, when I came, though, it was interesting because I I came to the states walking with, and we were in Brenham, Texas, a very small town, and I'm walking with my other friends from. Central and South America And as you know Like I said in, in this part of the world We are pretty We're pretty mixed up all that good stuff And we're walking down the street And we have an Argentinian Girl you know white blue Eyed girl another Sort of Indian looking and you know All of us walking down And the first thing I heard Walking down Brenham is Something to the effect of Hey nigger, you're in the wrong part of town, and that was my int- that was likely the first week. I knew what it meant, but my friends didn't, and uh, so we went back to school. But that that was the sort of introduction that I got. Did that have an effect on me? Uh, I grew up pretty um, pretty headstrong based on the parents that I had. I had parents that ensured that things that people said to you didn't have much effect and in this in as much as something may have burned for a while it was not long lasting so I came here and I understood that at Blinn I had no problems at the, the college I still believed in what America represented everybody every place has its problem even I mean every country has its problem I don't care where you're at um when uh, after being in Brenham for a year, I decided to give up that music scholarship that I was on. I actually came to the United States on a music scholarship. That was how I was able to pay. So I was on a music scholarship doing engineering at Blinn College, kind of different. But I then migrated after the first year to the University of Texas. And immediately, I was always an activist, even back in Panama. It's like, why are we allowing this to happen, et cetera. And I, we, I went to the University of Texas. And at the University of Texas... I joined the South African Liberation Action Committee, and that the, the 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 pretense behind that is that we wanted to ensure that the United States, that the University of Texas, would not be investing in apartheid South Africa with their the billions of dollars that we commanded with that university. So we marched on campus, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and. At that point, I was in a church called Maranatha Christian Center. I never forgot it. I, as an activist, I then went to the, I played the guitar for the church, and we had fun in the church, and we were all God-loving people, all that good stuff, Bible-thumping, reading, you know? And I went to, um, I went to the pastor, and I said, hey, we are marching on campus to get the, to get the University of Texas to divest from South Africa. And the pastor said, we don't do that. And I said, why not? I mean, come on now. Jesus was a radical man. He would have, I mean, this man walked on water and he did all these kinds of stuff. He would have done that. And this guy said, we don't do that. And he said, by the way, Egberto, do you know that Jesus never spoke out against slavery? And I said, oh, really? I didn't quite remember that. I was a Christian back home. And I, you know, we never really talk about stuff like that. But he forced me to read the whole darn New Testament, and I did. And by God, the guy was right. And that's when I became a humanist. Uh, That's when I gave up on religion, and that's when I, I mean, you know, still, that's when I gave up on religion. Anyhow, um, at that point, I still went on with my activism, got my degree in college, and then I started to work for... um, different organizations both I started at the oil companies and I went to work for NASA and a few other places that I worked for and I at that time I was still doing a lot of blogging as an activist in those days it wasn't called blogging some of you may be too young to remember things like CompuServe and these other things where you could write these different things politically that's that's where I engaged AO even AOL was a little bit before that time so that's that's what I did, and as time progressed, and the first time blogging started, the first time there was a website, when 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 uh, the guy from where is it uh, Holland or whatever designed hypertext, I was out there with my website politically under a pseudonym because I worked for Corporate America. So I always knew how to how to work within a system to get try to get some of your money your your point across. Um, After leaving NASA, I formed a software company, and I formed a software company because, you know, it it was just time, and I worked it for a long time, and I also continued blogging uh, and doing all these things on, on the side, but anonymously, until my daughter got out of high school. When my daughter left high school, it was open season, meaning I didn't have to hide anymore. So when I didn't have to hide, I started a program called Liberal Politics Done Right. Well, after joining the coffee party, which is really a non-part, tr- we call it a transpartisan organization because we wanted to reach everybody. And I must say that the coffee party is, was instrumental. The coffee party was instrumental in, in, in mellowing me out into a manner that said we should be engaging with everybody, no matter what you think Of that person. So I will engage with an anarchist. I will engage with a KKK person, which I have. I would engage with militia folk. I will engage with anybody civilly and try to have a conversation to move what we believe in forward. Um, So after I formed, I started that, that internet radio show called Liberal Politics. And right after I joined the coffee party, I changed it to just politics done right. And the reason why is to ensure that I didn't alienate any particular person who's scanning something. And believe it or not, it was also supposed to be a bit tricky, right? Politics done right. Do I mean on the right side of the spectrum or politics done correctly? You know, nobody really knows. So I get a lot of people like kind of test and, and, and try to show anyway. And, and so, so we did that. After doing that for some time, I made a proposal to KPFT 90.1 FM Houston, Pacifica Network. I think many of you may know of the Pacifica Network a set of stations around the country. And they picked it up and unlike the concept, so I've been doing it at KPFT since then. Um, during the healthcare debate, though, uh, that is when. And, and the, title, the, the title of what I want to talk about today is Empowering Us All to make our demands on undeniable and attainable. And the reason I said that is too often what we think is that we are one person and that we can't make a difference. And my goal in life after I gave up my software companies and gave up corporate America and everything else, and by the way, I am not telling anybody that working for corporate America or anything like that is wrong, but I'm just saying what I did I decided that, um, that uh, I would really fully engage. So during the healthcare debate, I remember getting very upset. We weren't really addressing issues as we should. And I felt impotent, completely impotent. Like many people feel when you go talking about politics to folks. Very, very impotent. So I sat down in a Starbucks and in 2 months came out with my first book called as i see it class warfare the only resort to right wing doom of course i got into a bit of trouble with the coffee party because they thought the the name of the book was a bit too maybe racy but they they you know when reading the book it wasn't at all a war it was really this is these are how things are and that we are in really a class we're really in a class war so I, I came I came out with that book because I wanted to show how all of those things integrated themselves. I again the reason I start talking about the biography at first, or a little bit about myself as first, is you can see the migration, you can see exactly where I'm coming from. The first piece now that I wrote for Coffee Party USA was a piece called Americans Held Hostage. And the reason I wrote that is I Feel, and I think we all live, uh, however, you know, however we, we try to en- uh, take it, in effect, we're all hostages, right? Uh, we are pinned down to doing certain things a certain way. Uh, we have been indoctrinated to believe that things must operate the way they operate right now. We must believe that you get up at eight in the mornings or whatever time you get up and you go to work. You do something for somebody else and you come home. And that's how the the majority of us live our lives, because that's just how we were programmed. I um, I told a group on a program once that we are all, you know, at first in America, what we had was slavery, but our economic system taught a much better lesson. And that lesson was, why put people in chains when we can have virtual chains by controlling their minds? And if I have control of your mind, I don't really need chains because I can do as I please. And that is where... Since I came to the United States in 1979, and in as much as we have been indoctrinated for some time into the belief that we were exceptional, we were indoctrinated into believing that everything that we did was the correct way to do it, it was okay because we were all surviving. We were all surviving. But the thing about the type of economic system that we have is the corrosive nature of it means that eventually we start to eat our own. And when we start to eat our own, we have to start finding a boogeyman. And that boogeyman, as we approach that, as we approach that on stable's part of where this economic system takes us, we get the person who starts to define the boogeyman. Everybody thinks that Donald Trump was some sort of a anomaly. Everybody thinks, oh, where did he come from? What, is he showing some scars or what is he really doing? Yes, he's showing some scars, but the scars are not within the American people. I tell, I just left D.C. with my daughter who had a stroke. We were talking about people, and she likes to be independent, and she doesn't like to ask for a lot of help. And I said, "You have to ask for help, and you have to ask people to do things and help out because we are a community." And I said, "Most people are good." And I and I, and she said, "That that's not really true." And I'm like, "Yeah." I went out during the Tea Party days to a dinky bar in the west part of to west part of Houston where there are some crazy looking supposedly rednecks and by the time we were done i didn't say that i i didn't say that we cured whatever isms they had but we were able to connect on a human basis and what we find is what changes us are those externalities that forces us to use the parts of our brains we should have outgrown long time ago that animal part of our brain that isn't the logical thinking part of our brain that have us believe in that some, somehow race means something as if there is really a race. Now, I've had to work within the race domain for some time, but I've never co-opted or capped to race. In other words, I don't believe in the social construct. Well, I know it's a social construct. I don't believe in the biological construct because the biological construct is false. The biological construct was created by an economic system that needs it. And in in, in the piece, as I prepared for what I was going to talk about today, I had a little phrase. And I'm always cognizant to the people that, that are listening to me because... I don't like too often for words to cloud what we're really trying to say. But in this case, I'm going to make an exception where I say racism is an antidote to... uh, Racism as antidote to capitalism's failure. And what do I mean by that? We know that our economic system from a mathematical standpoint, is unsustainable. You can't have infinite growth. You can't have all these things that we claim. When you, If you listen to CNBC, you're listening to a whole bunch of crap. You're lo- listening to legalized gambling. We're the, we're, the, we're the mathematicians who created things like derivatives and created things like credit default swaps. Never knew what they were talking about. They used mathematical formulas based on something that mathematical formulas didn't apply to, but they did. And in the process of doing that, uh, they accelerated a failure that was bound to happen irrespective. So we got failure. And our failure was really not easily recoverable. Obama supposedly bring this, you know, we got out of that that semi-failure, but we never really did. Dr. Richard Wolf the economist uh, a, a, a well-known economist came out and said it was easy what they did right they inflated our system they credit they they gave if infinite credit and they gave you the semblance of prosperity or the semblance of a recovery and in the process of doing that what did they do they created a they created a system that was that was ready for a bigger demise. And henceforth comes uh, Donald Trump understanding what we're uh, we're, not him understanding, but the people that's backing him understanding where we were going and where is it that we were going? You know, we, we had to find a boogeyman. And when he came down those stairs and he said, Mexicans were rapist killers and everything else, he knew what he was doing. When he started to create this racial angst in this country, he knew what he was doing. What he was doing is ensuring that people would keep their eyes off of the ball. If, you're, if you are looking at the other as the reason why 80% of the people in this country cannot have a thousand, if they have a thousand dollar bill, they are, they're finished. If you, want to, if you want to make sure that they don't come for the real boogeyman, create one. So those dark people are your problem. They want everything for free. Those people that come in over the border, They're going to take your jobs, you know. Those other folks, they're going to burn your stuff down. So, you are if you if you look at right wing radio stations and television stations right now, what you find is you find a system that is, uh, you know, completely anathema to what's reality. So, that was a necessary thing for our what I always talk about our plutocracy. Create. You know, we were were led to believe that uh, the wealthy were special people. And when I talk about wealthy, I know we probably have a few millionaires on the show right now, on the program right now. And for the millionaires on here, I'm not talking about you. Uh, That is not you at all. For the guy who owns a a place with 100 employees, I'm not talking about you. For the person who owns a bakery, a donut shop, who owns a grocery store, I'm not talking about you. The plutocracy, the Trumps, and these guys want you to believe that when we're talking about equity, that we're somehow talking about taking away what you have earned, but you have earned it. But many, the, the, the the real wealth in this country are things that we don't know how to describe and we don't really see. And those are the folks that I consider the parasites of our society and the ones that we have to take back what they have given or what they had taken on the backs of everybody else? So are you an engineer? Are you a teacher? Are you a doctor? Are you a lawyer? You, your services are invaluable. Are you a garbage collector? Do you sweep the floors? Do you clean up the mess at daycares? your val- your value to society is immeasurable but that is not those are not the people who are the real wealthy who are the ones who control this country those are not the ones who are getting the spoils of this country you know, many of us look at Bill Gates, and we love Bill Gates because he's given all his money away. And we love Jeff Bezos because Jeff Bezos, I mean, he is great. He amassed 160 something or $200 billion. Whose money is that? Whose money is that? Where did that money come from? Jeff, Jeff Be- was Jeff Bezos so intelligent that he was deserving of $200 billion? Or is that a piece of the action of the several hundred thousand people who work for Jeff Bezos not being paid? Bill Gates bought MS-DOS as CPM and some other permutations. derived from a Seattle company for $50,000. He had capital. He had something to work with. He picked that up. And he was smart. He didn't sell the software to IBM. He licensed it. So he got a piece of IBM's action. You know, it's a different economic system that doesn't value work, worth, or service. It values capital. How can you use what you've got to make more on the backs of others? Oprah Winfrey, they love Oprah Winfrey. I I used to love, I mean, I don't, look, these guys are league playing very well. They are playing the game as it was designed. So you don't hate them. You dislike the game. And how do you change the game? That is what I'm going to talk about empowering. You know, they are the game. They're playing the game and they play the game well. And you know what? Everybody that's listening right here, if they wanted to, could play that game. They have the wherewithal to play that game. But remember what I said I told my daughter? Most people are good. Most people don't think they need a billion dollars to live well. Most people don't think they need $10 million to live well. Most people, after they reach a certain point, they say, ah, okay, I've got enough. Let me go on to the next thing and whatever. But there's a pathology with a very small, you ever wondered why the 0.1% of the people are like that? That's because the 0.1% have a pathological problem. It's hard to say, but it is true. Just look at Ask, if you ever doubt it, ask all the billionaires we know, from musicians to politicians to uh, all these others, how many of them want a tax increase to really have a good redistribution? Oh, but I got the redistribution a bit too early. I'm still with meritocracy. Meritocracy really means that if you are good at what you do, that you will merit from what you're able to do, no matter what. And the truth of the matter is, I go to church, or I don't go to church, but in in, in going to church, right? You see all these great singers, you know, they're meritorious of having music contracts, but they're not chosen. You have to be chosen. And that's a dirty little secret of our system, right? Everybody think if you married you go to college and you do all the things right you're going to be just fine. Nobody ever tells you about you know we always talk about the NFL. You know all those kids in base every, all those kids that are playing baseball and in high school and college or playing football in high school and college. They are, they shouldn't they they should pick something else because you know only 1% of you or less are going to make it into the NFL. But I forgot to tell you that about college too, right? They forgot to tell you that about a whole lot of other things that, you know, you go to college for one thing and you end up doing something else. And I mean, they they forget to tell you that you have to be chosen for what you really want to be. If you are meritorious of that, you have to be chosen. That's our system. That is our system. So Bill Gates, he had the capital, but he was chosen. Jeff Bezos, had the capital, was chosen. His father loaned him $300,000, and he was chosen there. There's a little story I tell all the time, right? Um, I'm a software developer, and when it was coming out, things were just starting, and I thought about this stuff about selling products online, and I was going to create this piece, this this cart that you click on a button and you sell something, and we started to do patent searches. I didn't know you had to do patent search for software, but apparently you did. Because Jeff Bezos, Amazon owned the one click, one click patent, which means all of us who had a great idea that was no real great idea at all, couldn't use that no good, no great idea because somebody else was using it, which meant I wanted to sell a piece of software for a couple hundred dollars a pop and I couldn't do it because Bezos owned the, con- the, the, the license to the thing. So what I'm trying to say, meritorious doesn't really mean success. Oprah Winfrey, several billion dollars. What about the engineer who built the camera? What about the person who built the the microphone? What about the person who built the videotape, the satellites, and all those things that affords her the ability to make billions? You see, we don't think that way, right? We don't think that everybody plays a part in the success of all these others, you know? I remember when I started developing software and I developed a piece of software for Microsoft that made the serial port do something magic and I thought it was worth all that. And then I sat back down and I said, you know what, though, but think about on how many people's back. The guy who designed the microprocessor that, yes, I'm programming the microprocessor, but hell, he designed it and he doesn't even know what I'm doing with it. And making money off of what he did. We have an economic system that doesn't reward those who make things. Every one of you that are listening to me right now, doing some sort of a job, and somebody else is building something off of what you did and others off of what somebody else did. And what our economic system t- teaches is that last person, that person who can capitalize what you did, Is the one who gets rich and all the people who produced everything else. So long. Good luck. That's what it's all about. So uh, I I, want to thank uh, uh, Randy for talking about some of the issues that I spoke about in my book, It's Worth It. Because one of the things that I really wanted to say is that our biggest problem is that we don't talk to each other and exchange ideas as we should and respect each other as we should. So that all these different ideas and, and ways of thinking will come out or would come out. If we did, the control that that the system, and I always talk about the system, has on us would be that much less effective. But because we all are designed or we are all placed in our own little silos, and these silos are class-based, race-based, gender-based, and all these other little silos, and, and, and folks think that there is some reason why they shouldn't communicate or some reason why the other one hates the other, uh, they are able to maintain the power over us. So my goal in life is not to do that. It's to say, let's be self-empowering. How do we become self-empowering? We talk to each other. We forget about our own biases. We all have biases. You know, the isms doesn't... Look, uh, I always tell, uh, tell people, right, um, No, nobody has a monopoly on evil. Nobody has a monopoly on goodness. Nobody has a monopoly on anything. I don't care who you are, race or otherwise. We have been constructed a certain way from the, our inception as a country and we have been living through that indoctrination ever since. And if we ever decide to give it up, which I think we will in the long run, that, that, that country that we want to be exceptional would be exceptional. And how do we become exceptional? We, do, we pick up things that other people do. Uh, the redistribution of wealth. People hate to hear that word. Redistribution as if it means that people haven't earned what they're about to give. No. We talk about child care. We talk about Medicare for all. We we talk about basic income, meaning everybody has a right to have a starting living income. We talk about bifurcated economies where there are certain parts of our economy that does not belong in the uh, in, in the public sector and certain parts that don't belong in the private sector. And right now. It is all a whack. What is healthcare doing in a private sector? Are we somehow ever going to be able to, uh, should we ever want to hurt somebody if they, they get ill? I don't think so. So ultimately, and I'm, I'm coming to my close in stating that I think we can become that exceptional country with empowerment. And empowerment means... removing the chains from our minds empowerment means uh removing the indoctrination that have that have been placed in us since our inception i mean it started from us being a country based on capital first the first thing we ever ask if you ask about a tax plan, how is that going to affect business? If we ask about a health plan, how is that going to affect business? If we ask about everything, it's how is it going to affect business? We never first ask, how does it affect human beings first? Empowerment means asking that question. How does it affect us all first? And after we've determined that, we create a system in which we come first. And it's not impossible because there are brands of it in many countries, not perfect, but many countries have tried that, that empowerment. And if we did that, we would first elect the people that would make it a reality and put it true. So with that, thank you so kindly.
2: Thank you so much, Egberto. Uh, Before the Q and A's, so people can put Q and A's into the Q and A's. And uh, before we do that, though, I want to give uh, a different thread another shot at uh, giving us some music. So I'm going to pass it over to uh, Alicia Best and Robert Jackson, A Different Thread.
4: I hear they put a new light up by the Kraken on the 54 and back in I don't want to be Living in the past it Seems the past is catching up They say times are changing They say times Times are changing, it same time heals all wounds
2: comments, but uh, it would be great if uh, someone had a question uh, for Egberto. Uh, If so, type it into the Q&A that's at the bottom of your screen. While that is happening, I I will throw a question uh, at Egberto now. Uh, Egberto, I mean, you're positioned in a good way to, uh, through your show and things, to reach across political divides and political barriers. Uh, but a lot of us are, are facing it in a more uh, sort of up close and personal within our families. Sometimes we have political polarization that can make uh, dialogue difficult. And, and just if you have some suggestions or pointers that you might share with us on, on how to crack that and how to uh, listen better to each other and communicate better, I, I think that would be great.
3: I have a a, a story for you, a quick one, and it goes like this. My sister, I have an older sister who is a Trump supporter, okay? And everybody else in the family, we are progressive, liberal. She is a church-going evangelical Christian who loves Donald Trump. And I love my sister. I won't let Donald Trump get between my sister and myself, so during the pandemic, I told my sister, I, I called her up once and, you know, they, they, that was during the mask issues. I looked at her and I, I called her and I speak to her all the time. And we sometimes even tease each other about Trump and other things. And I always try to get a little nudge in as far as, hey, what do you think about this or whatever? But I listen a lot. I listen to why she believes it. And, and there's a calculated way in which the right wing operates that progressives probably should learn. But that's another subject. What I do do as far as making sure the lines stay open is I called her once and I said, look, I know you don't believe in masks. I know you don't believe in doing these particular things, but I'm your brother. And if I, let's, let's go under the assumption that you love your brother. Could you please, if you don't want to wear the mask for you, could you wear it for me? And taking a different approach, she stopped for a while. And then she said, okay, Birdo, okay. And so that broke a little bit of uh, well, you know, I mean, a, a, a lot of times uh, she's a very smart woman, but a lot of times what happens is that people are so wedded to their positions that, that they need an escape route. And I think as progressives, we can offer many times an escape route so that, and you know, people say, why is it that progressives always have to yield? And the reason why is that they will never yield because they don't have the capacity to see the better good many times. And and that may sound crass, but I mean, they don't, many of them, the way they are wired, uh, they need that exit ramp. And however we can find a way to give them an exit ramp, and again, that means sometimes being more selfless than one might want to be. But if we want to make the change, somebody has to do that. And that's why I tell my audience sometimes when they give me hell for being too nice to our right... Uh, we have a lot of right-wing folks that come in and talk and stay. They come every every day, they're there, every day. And I entertain them and I'm nice to them, et cetera. And some of my other my lefties get pissed at me and I'll tell them, look, I can take it. You don't have to, I can take it. I'm, you know, but if you don't, I mean, I'm not telling you that you need to do it, but don't attack me for doing it.
2: Thank you. Got a question from uh, Linda Gutten. And she says, uh, why do you think billionaires won't give away 80% of their money to save millions of lives? Uh, Are we really talking about that deep a hit on the billionaires or what's, what, what is the the proposal?
3: I, uh, you know, actually, I think Linda has the perfect question. Imagine this, right? Uh, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, Oprah Winfrey, and a few other billionaires could just take a little piece of their monies, a little piece and build enough factories. We know how to build the factories now, so they are now turnkey, which means it's just like a Ford plant. You can build a factory in three months, right? And you can generate any number of billion doses of vaccines, but our economic system prevents us from doing that. They could do that. It never occurred to them that they just go ahead and pool $100 billion if they wanted to, And do it. Our government could do that. But it, it, the the pharmaceutical companies won't allow them to do it because of how we work. Uh, Another
2: question from anonymous says, uh, say more about the pathology of those who have all the money. It sounds right, but explain.
3: Well, I mean, um, look at yourself, right? I, I, I look, at, I, I, I look at people many times and what you find is that you go out with somebody and that person that is always trying to maximize what they have. You, you have a conversation with somebody. I go out with people and there are people who would think, oh, I, I have enough of something. And then there are the, those that constantly want more. They don't need it, but they want it. They want it. And you ask why, why? They can't tell you, they just want it. And that—that that is a certain, I mean, uh, we have a lot of different kind of pathologies, right? I probably have a few pathologies myself, you know? But I mean, we have a lot of, some of them are bad, some of them are good. That one is really, really bad because it actually hurts people really, really bad.
2: Would you comment on the future of democratic socialism in America?
3: Um, did somebody there know that I was a democratic socialist? Uh, I don't know that they know that. They may have done some research. I'm not sure. Well, l- l- here's the truth. I I label myself a democratic socialist for the lack of a, any other label. I mean, I, the labels doesn't really mean much, right? I, ch- I 100% believe in free enterprise. In other words, open your store, make your money, make your profit. If you remember during my talk, I was talking about, I'm not talking about, the, there are several millionaires probably listening to us right now. I'm not talking about your money you have a you have a few million in your 401k i'm not talking about that you have 10 million in your 401k i'm not talking about that that those that's peanuts compared to what the wealthy really has in this country and that is why and the psychology that our media the psychology that our politicians which are crook many are crooked use Is they make those people who have 10, 20, 30 million dollars believe that we're coming to take that away from them. But that's not who we are after at all. Democratic socialism simply says that we want a society where the, and you heard me talk about bifurcated economies. We want a society where Medicare for all and these types of things that belong in the public sector where there's not a profit motive stays there and places where you want to build a telephone. You want to make a telephone. And if people want it, they buy it. If they don't, they don't Free enterprise. You want to go ahead and build a mouse. You want to build a coffee cup. You want to open a restaurant. All of that is in the private sector. But when it comes to the needs, I believe energy, I believe uh, certain levels of food, I believe basic income. There are certain things that humanity demands that I think belong in the public sector, and I am not smart enough to understand all the areas, but I'm pretty sure they can put a whole group of smart people together that can figure out profit is detrimental to your health in, in this particular area, and profit is not detrimental to your health in this particular area. There are a lot of smart people that can figure that out.
1: So uh, I noticed that you're in Texas. And there are, I don't know, one or two things happening in Texas that are probably uh, difficult for people who are politically liberal to uh, stand. So I guess the, the question about the uh, changes in voting uh, access would be one that I would wonder. What's your take on um, the best response to what the legislature has been
3: doing? Well, you know what is interesting, right? Um... When Obama was in office, Obama said something that I, I think everybody should have listened to, that voter suppression works for about a one to two percentage points in any election. There are some people you're not going to stop voting. There, there's nothing you can do that prevent them from voting. They'll learn what, what they have to do to vote, and they'll go vote, right? But then there's that the delta. There's a delta amount of folks that if voting becomes a strain or anything difficult, that's what they'll, you know, they, they won't vote. The thing about the right is there are two things that they do on the right. They make it, they they make they scare those poor people so badly that they believe that we liberals, progressives, we are, we are coming to eat their babies. So they are scared to death. These people are genuine, they're not bad people. They're just scared. They are genuinely scared. And they are going to vote because their survival in their minds depend on it. And you know, progressives are like, you guys crazy. But but our nonchalantness, or because we know what we know that it's crap, we have a tendency to take that for granted. And that's why they quasi-win. And notice I said quasi-win, because remember, the constitution is not a democratic document, right? The Constitution, you have 50 senators, I mean, you have 100 senators, and, and, and um, California has two, and South Dakota has two. Come on now, you know, that's not a democracy at all. Uh, but, so, as far as the voting in Texas, the good thing about Harris County, which is a bellwether for not only Texas, but for the country, is that we've already started working on, we've already identified the people that are going to be target that we need to target in 22, if that job gets done, and we are going to be getting a, a new, a new um, chair in this county that that knows about this stuff, we hope, and we'll make sure to reach those people. What we have to do in Texas, because they can't take away your vote, they can make vote voting difficult. We have to let them pay the price for making the vote difficult. And I think uh, we can. one of sometimes when you try to restrict somebody from doing something, that is when they actually go ahead and do it and we have to hope that we can do that.
0: Sonia: All right, now that I've had a moment to think about it, um, one question that I have for you is I got the impression that uh, that you actually think that there is hope for the future of our country and that perhaps things might change and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your hope
3: I'm always hopeful you know I I never get I never get discouraged I mean if I look let, let me you know I'm going to tell you a story my wife tells me told me one time she said you know she went out and she was playing with some friends I think they were playing tennis or something right and she was the only black woman there right and there was uh, this white woman that uh, somebody hurt her feelings right and it was the end of the world. And they all sat down to, you know, they were eaten. They, they went out to lunch. And the lady was complaining to, uh, to my wife. And my wife pat her on the back and she said, um, you know, I think you would have a hard time being black. And the woman looked at her and like, what do you mean? And then she said, we live that every day. Of our lives, and a light bulb went off on in this woman, right? So I guess the reason I use what she said as an example is that things look bad, right? But it has looked worse for a lot of a lot of other people like uh you know it, it was funny because one of the reasons people say like why why don't some of these people vote because you know you know things are, you know things get better for the people at a certain level and above right but for some people in this country things never change right so bad doesn't mean bad for you doesn't necessarily mean any worse for them so um so what we have to start looking at, and that's what I'm talk, when I talk about empowering us all, right? Empowering us all is what get us over the hump. Because if all is empowered, we have enough power to take away. It's this amount of people that are bad in this country. The rest of the people are just misled. And if you had, a, I, I always call the misled ill, right? If you have a friend that is ill, do you throw them away or do you try to cure them? Do you, you know, I mean, if you had a a friend with a psychological problem and they told you something that hurts your feeling, you use that as the screen with which you measure their words. So if a sane person told you that, it would bite. But when that person that has a few problems tell you that, it comes with a different level of understanding. And that is where, that is how I look at it. Is America uh, in bad shape? Yes. Is it irreversible? Hell no. I I mean, uh, no. I mean, I I think, look, like it it is funny because I have people that have, I remember this guy and and I I use this a lot because I'm in front of the camera and this guy calls up and he says, nigger, 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 nigger. And he's just, and for me, that don't mean anything, right? For me, it's like, gosh I guess you're having a bad day yeah so that is how I I looked at it right so I I'm t- I looked at him and I said so what what exactly is wrong tell me what you really really want to tell me and then he's nicking. I said okay now tell me what you want to say is there something that you want to talk about and eventually it got to him like damn and I got an email from the guy that says you know um I am sorry but I was just you know, I was just I, I I I don't know what got into me and whatever, but it, it it made a difference to him that I treated what he was going through as an illness. You know why? It is an illness. Racism is an illness. It's a it's a psych, it's a psychological illness because you know as we talk about it's a social construct. It's a psychological illness. So if I treat those things, racism, the problems that we're going through in this country, which Racism is only the tool. Our problem isn't racism. Our problem is what racism is needed to solve. Our economic system is a fraud. We need racism to try to keep it alive, and that's what a lot of people don't get. That's why we had things like redlining, and all you know, you have all these folks that will, these academics that will come out and say a whole lot of things about racism, and some, you know, some folks don't like what I say because I don't sit down, and I'm not going to sit down and call, uh. I'm not going to sit down and try to just say, oh, because you are white or because you're a Latino or because you're that, X is how we're supposed to look at things. I don't do that because I think if if we ever are to solve our problems, one, we have to give people the ability to screw up, and two, we have to be able to get through to people by first having them be willing to talk to you.
2: I'm excited to announce that we will be having another song. Yay. I'm glad we're not missing out just because of a technical glitch earlier. And also that if you um, would like to find out more about a different thread, they have dropped links to their music in the chat. So should we do maybe one more question and then we can go to a song? Would that be okay, Randy? That sounds perfect. John McCormick uh, wrote uh were you surprised by the story in ProPublica regarding billionaires and their taxes?
3: No, no, not at all. I am just happy that somebody documented it because I think I think now that ProPublica has put that out, especially at this time, I think it just could have a difference in, in the way we talk about the tax situation about uh, making sure people pay their taxes. So I think it's great.
2: Okay. Well, Egberto, I wanna thank you again uh, for making yourself available this evening and for sharing your wisdom with us and uh, your approach uh, to, to dialogue and to some of the problems that the country faces and that through empowering ourselves, uh, we can take action and make change. And that thank is a positive message that I was so so glad to hear.
3: Thank you so kindly for having me. I am I'm, I'm ecstatic for the work that you guys do. So thank you very much.
2: You're very welcome. And now I will, uh, we will close with some music from a different thread. So back to you.
4: Woke up on the wrong side. At least I'm not saw one for sorrow. Maybe I could use some bread. your wife today even sorrow brings joy even if tomorrow sunny side always
0: gets me burnt
4: you're sitting